0: Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello everyone and welcome to a headline event at the uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is being watched live around the world. You're very welcome to it. It's here to celebrate the 34th novel of the Queen of Crime, Val McDermid. She is of course very celebrated and we will be enjoying her company for an hour. Before that, let me just mention two things for you who are watching. If you want to follow sign language, there's a button for you to press. And if you want captions, you can also have captions uh, to hear what we're saying in another language. I understand there are people watching in Portugal and I understand people in Vancouver Island are watching. Where else I wonder, New York possibly. And I understand there are parties underway. Well, this party is underway too. And I'm absolutely delighted to be in the company of Val McDermott who has written so many wonderful novels. Fans will know, and the ones who don't will be interested to know, that she has three strands of hero hero heroine. Kate Branigan, who is a private eye, that's been the subject of six novels. There's um, uh, Tony Hill and Carol Jordan, who are forensic scientists who are the subject of 11 novels. And this novel, the new one, Still Life, features Detective Inspector Karen Pirrie. And she is one of my favorite characters. The novel is called Still Life. Still Life in you, Val. You're very welcome to be here and we're delighted to have your company. Let me ask you first about titles. Still Life, why?
1: Um, I, think, I guess because at the, start of, the heart of this book is the art. Uh, both strands of the story involve painting, artists, uh, and so I was looking for something that reflected that uh, and that also reflected the fact that we're, we're still going forward, that, uh, that Karen Piri, like me, still has plenty of life in her. So I quite like uh, titles that, that can have perhaps more than one level of meaning.
0: Obviously, with 34 novels, there are an amazing number of titles and varieties of titles. And, for example, the Kate Brannigan titles are rather short and terse and crisp. And the others, some of them have quotes from T.S. Eliot. So does that reflect your literary education?
1: I suppose so. Um, The Eliot really came about with the the first of the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novels, The Mermaid Singing, Uh, because I was thinking about a title for the the book and it seemed to me that uh, both the... The sleuth, Tony Hill, who is a clinical psychologist, and the killer themselves felt like J. Alfred Prufrock. They were on the other side of the wall. They wanted to be part of the world. They wanted to be part of the women coming and going, but there was a sort of wall between them. So there was that kind of balance between the the hunter and the hunted uh, I wanted to reflect. And so I found that the quote from... Uh, G. Alfred Prufrock. I've heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me, which I think is one of the saddest couplets in in English poetry. So yeah, and once I'd got that title, I was I was uh, therefore stuck with Eliot for quite a few few years in that sequence of books. Was my editor liked the idea of sticking with that? And but, Wire but, in
0: the blood is, is Eliot, isn't it yeah,
1: too? Trilling, wire in the blood. Yes, that's from the four quartets, uh, and beneath the bleeding, and the fever of the bone, and so on.
0: Now, this novel is set in the present time, and it begins in February of this year, and it ends just before lockdown. And the story unfolds within the months that we have lived through, which you have spent writing the novel. There's a sort of paradox there, isn't there?
1: Yes, uh, of course, when I started writing this book, I had no idea of what lay ahead of us. I had always, from when I started planning it last summer, uh, I'd always intended the book to be set in February 2020. Uh, I needed it to be set in in winter uh, and uh, that was when it was going to take place. But as I started writing it, of course, the the gathering clouds of COVID-19 appeared on the horizon. And I didn't want to do this in a knowing way. I didn't want people to sort of of nudge, nudge, see what's coming, folks. But I I did have to put little seeds of reference within the book to it. Uh, And the way it worked out, it worked quite well to have it end on the eve of lockdown, because everything by that stage was neatly tucked away, as it were. Um, And I I didn't, didn't want to actually venture into lockdown. But writing it from lockdown, looking back at where we had been just before that was quite strange.
0: Yes and all the, right at the end I'm not giving anything away but all your the characters that we've got known have sca- go scattering around because they are in fact going into lockdown. that in fact um, we won't talk about the villains because that's another story. and indeed you tell two stories here, two complex thrillers going on in one book. Now people want to know about your plot, how you plot that it's often so intricate and this one is particularly intricate and well worth worked out how do you do it with diagrams how do you do it
1: I used to when I started out I was really uncertain about my ability as a plotter as a a storyteller almost Um, and I unpicked Some novels by writers whose storytelling I admired, Jane Austen, Ruth Rendell, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, kind of lifted the bonnet to see how how they worked underneath the bonnet. Uh, And I started out writing, planning out very carefully. Uh, I'd have have file cards and I'd do chapter by chapter, scene by scene on the file cards and sometimes juggle them around till they made narrative sense. Uh, And when I started writing the Kate Brannigan novels, uh, I learned something in the early 1990s when I was doing a nonfiction book about real women, private eyes. And when I went to talk to these women in the US and the UK, one thing that they all said was, you know, your characters in books only ever have one case at a time. And I, I remember vividly uh, one of them, Jean Minule uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, saying to me, I have 38 open cases on my desk right now. And so at that point, I realized that I had to find a way of making my books reflect the complexity of the detective's working life, whether it's a private detective or a police detective. There's never just one thing going on. And so I I realized I had to figure out a way to make that work. And over the years, I suppose I gradually gained confidence in my ability to string a narrative together. So I don't do the detailed planning anymore. Now I have a sense of the overall arc of the story and the destination in mind. And it's uh, what E.L. Doctorow calls driving at night writing. You set off, you know where you're starting from, you know what you're aiming for, but you can only see the bit of the road in front of your headlights. So you have to keep going forward and trust that you'll eventually end up either at your destination or as near enough as makes no difference. So I tend to know what the next five, six chapters are, Uh, I know when I start out, usually I know where the ending is and I know maybe two or three crucial turning points in the story and somehow I have to get it to to work.
0: And what about the characters you've developed? Because we've grown to know them over the years and you have developed them from your knowledge of different subjects, you were a journalist, you were a tabloid journalist for a long time. So has that gone into Kate Brannigan?
1: It's gone into all of them because um, the one thing I really took away, I took two things away from journalism. One was not to be precious about writing, it's a job, you just sit down and do it. Uh, and the other is that I, I acquired a huge data set of characters. Um, I met all sorts of people from the highest in the land. I once interviewed Prince Charles down to, to the lowest, you know. Uh, and. I saw them in all sorts of situations at home, at play, at work, um, often in times of crisis. So I have this this huge data bank. Uh, and when I'm thinking about a character, I'll, I usually know if it's not one of the central characters of the book, I know what I need that character to do within the story. So I think, who have I met? Who do I know over the years that would, would do this kind of thing? And, and, and I just summon up someone from the past and, and put new words in their lives, in their mouths rather. And I, I, I give them a new life. And,
0: and you in fact interviewed Jimmy Savile, didn't you, once? one time? And something about him went into one of your characters?
1: I think, uh, I wouldn't say that it was, the character was based on him, but I certainly was, it was informed by him. Um, I, and it's in, in the book The Wire and the Blood, uh, I, when I was thinking about that book, I was in America researching my private eye book. Uh, and at the time, the O.J. Simpson case was going on. And one of the prim- private eyes that I interviewed had actually been involved in the initial allegations of paedophilia against Michael Jackson. And it seemed to me that in the course of that journey, it seemed to me that, that celebrity gave a kind of shield to criminal behavior. There have always been groups in society that have been protected by, the, by their position, whether it was you know the original lords of the manor or the church or whatever. Um, and I thought it was interesting to think about the possibility of someone who used that position of, of safety, as it were, to commit heinous crimes. And I came back and I started thinking about it. And I remembered the stories that had gone round in, in newspaper circles about Jimmy Savile. And we'd indeed had people come into our office making allegations against him, and allegations that were impossible to prove because it was one person's word against his. He was notoriously litigious. Uh, and these people who came in, frankly, were already damaged by what had happened to them in their lives. And you know we said, we would say to them, why don't you go to the police? And they said, we went to the police, and the police told us to F off. So all of that was in my head as, as a possibility. And I wrote this character who, I thought I was sailing close to the wind. You know, at the time, there was Savile's Travels on the television, and I, I gave this character, it was called Jacko Vance, Vance's Visits. Uh, I had him doing charitable work in hospitals, and all, all, a lot of, lot of connective tissue, if you like, and, but I made him charming and handsome. And nobody thought it was Jimmy Savile. People suggested all sorts of names. It's that nice man off Countdown, isn't it? No, it isn't that nice man off Countdown. Um, but nobody, nobody thought it was Savile because I had made him charming and handsome, which was another lesson I learned along the way. So you alter one or two of the characteristics
0: and then you can convince anyone that they're real and, uh, and not the people they suspect.
1: And people uh, are seldom suspicious of charm and beauty.
0: Oh, yes. that's, that's worth remembering, isn't it? Um, now um, this story, um, the current one, you you made it in February to March. the story spans February to March. You, it's just been published. Where are you now in terms of knowing the world we live in? because you've had a wonderful review in the Scots, and I'm just going to quote it. It's Alan Massey who was praising you to the skies, and she and says, "She is a writer with a clear sense of right and wrong, and in touch with contemporary life, she still remains a moralist." Now that's a very telling and flattering phrase to be both a moralist and in touch with contemporary life. Where does that place you in terms of reporting what the world like is like today?
1: It places me in great difficulty, to be honest, Joan. I mean, I do not know how to write about where I am right now, where the world is right now. All of my books have been set pretty much in the here and now. Uh, and I don't know how to write the here and now because the here and now at the moment is changing on a daily basis. I don't know how uh, how to deal with that. So um, I've actually decided that my next book, uh, next year's book, will not be a contemporary novel, I'm going back in time, and it's going to be set in 1979, which you will remember was a a very interesting year. Started with the winter of discontent, moved on through the Scottish devolution referendum to the general election that brought Margaret Thatcher to power. So there's lots to write about there and lots of uh, different sorts of crime as well as the murder in it.
0: So uh, when you talk about this dilemma about the society we're living through and the things that are happening in the world, it's almost unrecognisable from the, what we've known for the last 20 years, 30, 40 years, you and I are something of an age. And, and
1: every, every day that goes by, uh, something happens that you just go like, what? I mean, this morning in the papers, there was the story of, uh, in America, uh, trucks going around taking mailboxes off the street so people can't post the letters or votes. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's extraordinary. And you, if you made this stuff up, I mean, it is like a Margaret Atwood dystopia. It's, it's extraordinary. It's a character, character way for you to tackle
0: there, isn't there?
1: Oh yeah, but uh, as I say, I think it's difficult to write things as they're happening. It's different for journalists, but I, I, I think as a, as, a, as a writer of fiction, it's important to have a sense of distance. It's important to have a sense of detachment. And when the stuff is actually happening around you on a daily basis, I think it's very difficult to achieve that.
0: Now, the the, the book is called Still Life, and there's a whole story about um, painting, uh, galleries, uh, artists and their rivalries and their deceptions. When did you get interested in modern art? And have you had to research it very thoroughly?
1: Well, I've always been uh, sort of vaguely interested in, in painting in terms of going and looking at it. Um, and I've had sort of odd moments where uh, a painting has, has really sort of smacked me between the eyes. And many years ago, actually, during the Edinburgh Festival, uh, there was a, a uh, an exhibition at the Modern Art Gallery here in Edinburgh of modern Scottish painting. And there was a painting by a guy called Stephen Conroy, a painting called The Healing of a Lunatic Boy. And I thought this was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen. And I got a print of it, and in fact, that, a print of that painting has hung in my, in my writing room ever since. So uh, I, I think there are moments when... I, I thought, I'm going to say that terrible thing, I don't know much about art. But every now and again, you you encounter something that knocks you back a bit. But I suppose the the, the recent interest in in portraiture came uh, because I have a friend who is a a painter, uh, Audrey Grant. And she came up with an idea for a project called The Long Look. And she wanted to do a long drawing. Uh, so essentially, I went and sat for two hours uh, every fortnight or so for 18 months, two years. Uh, and every week, Audrey would uh, rub out and start again and remake and rework. Uh, and every every week, the, the drawing would be photographed. So there was a record of that week's drawing. And then at the end, uh, the, the drawing you see here is the, the second of two long-look drawings that she made. And for me, it was fascinating to see how week on week it changed, how it altered... Uh, and what was also very interesting to me was, when I was in the process of finishing a book, the energy of the drawing was quite different from when I was just at the start of a book feeling my way into it. And I, I thought that was a fascinating, for me, I learned a lot of lessons, and a lot of time sitting there thinking. Uh, and also at the same sort of time as that, I discovered the program you present on Sky Art. Portrait Artist of the Year, and I found that equally fascinating. So this idea of, of how, how an artist interprets a face, how an artist interprets the world around them as well, became very intriguing to me. And I started talking to artists about what they do and their practice. Uh, and I came up with with an idea for the one of the artists in the book as, as a method of painting a portrait. And what my fictional artist does is he goes and paints a landscape first. And it's a landscape that is of significance to the subject of his portrait. So it might be a building that's important to them or a particular part of the country. And then he goes away and he cuts up the landscape and makes the portrait out of a collage. Now, I don't know if anybody actually does this for real. And if if you're out there and you're an artist and you fancy giving it a go, feel free. But I just, I was intrigued by that sense of of Throwing together landscape and, and portraiture.
0: So, what did it feel like to sit? Because perhaps you might come along on the program that I present, the Portrait Artist of the Week. Do you sit? Do you enjoy sitting?
1: I enjoyed it very much, actually. I, I to my surprise, and I'd love to come on the show because you know to, to be part of a program that's given me so much pleasure would be fun. Um, but I, I, I found the process of sitting. I, I found it very useful actually. I, I found it because there was two hours where nothing was expected of me other than to sit. Uh, And it was very freeing for the mind. Uh, I didn't have the phone on, I didn't have the email on, no one could contact me for those couple of hours. It was uh, a time where I could kind of let the wheels spin, So it was a way of resolving plot problems. It was a way of of, of coming coming up with ideas. Um, Sometimes we'd we'd break halfway through for a cup of coffee and I'd I'd sort of jump up and say, I need a pencil and a piece of paper to write something down before it escapes. So yeah, very useful.
0: Have you tried painting yourself?
1: Oh, I can't paint at all. I can't draw a straight line. I'm terrible. I have no artistic talent whatsoever. And the visual arts, I leave to people who have some talent. And I live with someone who has who has some visual arts talent as well. My my partner actually paid her way through her PhD by painting murals in people's houses. So uh, I, I feel very diminished in that respect. <laughs>
0: Well, you do have thirty-four novels to your name. Let's face it. Um, let's talk about your evolution as as through you went to St Hilda's College, Oxford. Mm. You were a working class girl who obviously passed the exams that were required, and that was unusual in in, the, in those days. Uh, and you read English, and um, you went on from there to become a journalist. So this path led you into latent feminism that was around at the time. When did it take yeah. hold you?
1: Yeah, I think I was, I was kind of ripe and ready for it in a way. You know, both of my parents um, were were people who had profound beliefs in, in equality and equal rights. They weren't revolutionaries by any manner of means. My dad was a great Burns man, um, and he was a believer in the you know, sort of equality and the man's a man for all that, and I should call no man my master. And my mother was a kind of proto-feminist in the sort of very small-town quiet way. I mean, I remember her her great campaign at the bowling club to get equal green time for the women members i mean it's a small thing but it, in their lives it was it was a big thing so and when i went off to to oxford i suppose i was i was i say ready for for something uh, that 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 would allow me to express those notions i'd grown up with and in my second year uh, i someone gave me a copy of kate millett's sexual politics and it was like a bomb going off in my head it was extraordinary. It completely altered and transformed the way I looked at the literature that I was reading every week for my tutorials. Um, and and that was, was, for me, was an extraordinary moment. But the, fun, the really funny thing about it is a slight sort of tangent here. My my tutor at Oxford, Anne Elliott, was very, very, very English and always beautifully turned out, perfectly suited, and her hair and a, a pure white chignon uh, and, and so, so sophisticated and, and, and smart and um, but very Church of England and very proper and uh, I, I came in from having read sexual politics and I was full of it I was bursting with it and I, I sat down for my tutorial and I, I just talked at her for 10 minutes about this amazing shaft of light that had, had come into my life and she sat there nodding and smiling and she's ah oh, yes dear Kate Millett what do you mean? And she had been Kate Millett's supervisor for the defil thesis that became sexual politics. I could not think of a more incongruous coupling, and yet had, had led to this extraordinary, life-changing book. So, you know, sexual politics, uh, because of its approach to literary criticism, that led me to the feminists, and the feminists led me to the lesbians, and I haven't looked back since. No, you haven't. And what is interesting is that that you made
0: partnerships in at a time and quite openly when it was quite difficult, wasn't it? Did you feel uh, you were pioneering in some way?
1: I never thought of it in those terms. I just wanted to live my life uh, as honestly and as openly as I could. I'd I'd seen too many uh, other people that I knew who were still firmly in the closet. And it, it looked to me from the outside that theirs was a life half lived. And I wasn't prepared to settle for that. And I was lucky, again, my my parents were uh, entirely accepting. I mean, remarkable. Scottish working class people of their generation. There was no issue around it. It it was never something that was, oh, dear, what have we done wrong? There was never any of that about it. So I guess there was always that place in my life where uh, I had the sort of solidity of support. yeah I know I know a lot of people who had very difficult times with their families and still have very difficult times with their families when they explain the nature of their sexuality but that was not something that happened for me it's you know people say to me you should write a biography you should write a memoir but f- how can i do that there's no trauma <laughs> not enough trauma um,
0: not enough trauma What is interesting is this, from what you're telling us, a lot of the events of your life have informed, of course, what you're writing about. And uh, there's a particular novel called Blue Jeans, which is about two lesbians who want to have a child. And I think that was published in the 90s, was it? 95.
1: 95.
0: Now, I was reporting that kind of thing on television. That was considered extremely unusual, um, controversial. It evoked a lot of um, disapproval. Censure and so on. Did you sense that yourself?
1: Um, I guess, but I wasn't, uh, I've, I've never really been bothered about what other people think about what I'm writing. Um, And I've never written with an eye on what the marketplace wants. I've been blessed with good editors who have supported me, and they know that the best way to get a good book out of me is to let me write the book I want to write, that I'm I'm excited about writing. And that book, uh, I kind of fell into my lap because I had a very good friend who was running a fertility clinic in the Midlands. And um, over many late nights and bottles of red wine, she talked a lot about the issues in the fertility business and, and attitudes and where the science was going and what was changing. And this seemed to me to be a completely fascinating thing to talk about. And I also knew new women uh, who, in couples who were trying to have a child. At that point, it was very difficult to get fertility treatment if you were lesbian. A lot of clinics just wouldn't treat you. Uh, so there were all these issues swirling around. And, and for me, uh, I, I guess, although it, did chime with my political views. For me, the exciting thing was this is a really good story. And that's always what drives me is this is a really good story and I want to tell this story. When the book came out, um, there was sort of much poo-pooing at the HFEA that you couldn't, this, this was impossible. That I, scientifically, what I suggested was impossible uh, to make a baby from two women. Uh, and then, about six months afterwards, I saw a report that uh, Japanese scientists had done just this with with cows, and my friend with the fertility clinic said, um, "If they can do it with a mammal as complex as a cow, they can do it with humans." And uh, you know, I let the record show.
0: What is interesting is that at the back of that book, back of that novel, you you say um, this has been this idea, this scientific idea, has been challenged, but there is evidence that it is going forward. And what is interesting about your acknowledgements of each of your books, you, you attribute a lot of contribution from people who know forensics, who know about technologies of various kinds. So you, you have two teams of people to whom you can refer for information, is that right?
1: Yeah, I would, not so much teams. I have, I have, I, 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 collect sort of people over the years who have have been helpful to me, um, and I, I have actually discovered over the years that the generosity of people who work in forensics, and also that they're extremely good communicators. Uh, and if I go to somebody I know with a with a question or a, or a, or a problem. If they can't answer themselves, they invariably pass me on to, to someone else, another kindred spirit who will give me their time and their expertise uh, and, and help me with, with things. And as I say, they're often excellent communicators. Uh, in this particular book, I, I had to speak to Professor Sue Black about the, a skeleton that's found in a camper van. Uh, and we discussed this and, and she said, and of course there would have been a maggot mass and what I've left behind is maggot cases that look like a pile of cocoa pops. And that really, uh, you know, I thought that's probably the last bowl of Cocoa Pops I'm ever going to have. <laughs> so, I'll never forget that. I'll never uh, forget that. Of course, one of the things you don't
0: need to acknowledge people for at all is food. There's a lot of food in your books and you, and particularly in this one. There's a lot of eating goes on in, uh, in the latest
1: one. People like food. You like food, don't you? Do you do, well, come on, look at me. I like food. <laughs> Yes, yes, uh, and actually, one of the things that we did um, during the, the, the lockdown was uh, uh, I, I, I did a series of cookery videos called Cooking the Books, which is on YouTube. Uh, my partner discovered a hitherto unsuspected talent as a videographer, so we ended up uh, doing these, these, these films uh, of, of cooking things that are connected to the books. And it sort of started with one of the, the recipes that comes from, from this book, because uh, uh, Karen's putative boyfriend, Hamish, Uh, about his porridge. Uh, So the first one we did was called Hamish's Hipster Porridge. Uh, And at one point, uh, Karen says, how can you have porridge where oatmeal is the minority ingredient? Uh, And I think um, think you can tell a lot about people by their attitude to food and and, and what they eat and when they eat it. And I I think it's something that often gets forgotten in the course of of crime novels. People are so busy running around uh, doing heroic things that they forget to have their tea. Uh, and frankly, they do, have a lot, they do have a lot
0: of sandwiches on the run. Yeah. And they have to spend coffee and cake very often. I've sympathised with that.
1: And I, I, I've one of the, the new characters in in this book, Daisy, uh, is one of those annoying people who can eat and eat and eat and eat all the wrong things and never put on an ounce. You know, she's always popping into Greg's for a sausage roll or popping into a service station for a cupcake. Um, I think and, and, you, I
0: think you describe it as the biggest sausage roll you've ever seen at one point. Yes. My yes. heart went out to her for that. Yeah. So that's, that's a, that goes. But also, are you a good cook? I mean, Thai food? Do you do Thai food? That cops up. in Well, your- we
1: we have a division of labour. Um, it's mostly of my partner who does the, the Asian food, and I do what I do the Indian food and sort of European food. But we, we we cook we cook together. We cook a lot. Um, in lockdown, I think we we cooked pretty much every day. I think we had two takeaways for the whole of lockdown. Um, And one of those was my birthday. It was a fish supper for my birthday.
0: (laughs) Now, what about, let's talk about locations, because these are crucial to all the stories that you tell, not simply whether you set them in Stockport or Edinburgh or the uh, Outer Hebrides. How do you choose your location? Does the location come first or does it develop? What happens now?
1: Sometimes the location shouts out to be written about. So Robert Louis Stevenson uh, memorably said about the, the Hawes Inn in, in South Queensferry that it was a building that it was a place that cried out for a murder. Um, and sometimes you, you do go a place and you think, this is this is a marvelous location. I must use this. I will use this. Um, and, and you t- tuck that away as a definite Place that's going to inspire a crime because of its particularities, but more often than not, I start thinking about the story I want to tell, the kind of murder it is, and the kind of the kind of crime that's in, the kind of crime and its surroundings. What has to happen in the course of this story, and then I start to think about what sort of place will this happen in? Is this going to be something that happens in Edinburgh? Is it something that happens in the north of England? Is it something that happens in a rural area? And so that's one of the things that that, that, that kind of focuses my, my mind. And I think this a sense of place is, is very important in the crime novel. And I think it's um I think it's one of the ways that we, we kind of kind of play a trick on readers, you know, because everybody, you all know that uh, crime novels, crimes in the real world are not solved the way we write about them in our books. You know, it's not one intrepid private eye who goes out and and takes on the world and, and succeeds. And it's not sort of, you know, one detective chief inspector in the historic cases squad with sending out Jason for the cups of coffee. That's really not how it happens. So I have to persuade you to suspend your disbelief. It's a kind of contract I enter into with you as a reader. When you pick up my book, you think I'm going to make you believe in my world. And one of the ways to do this is to make the setting as authentic as possible. If I write about a city or, or a landscape that you know and I get it right, you're going to think, oh, yeah, she's telling me the truth about that. She knows what she's talking about. She must be telling me the truth about everything else. Um, and well, when
0: th- I, know, I know Stockport, in which you... Um there are episodes in which take place in Stockport and you actually use particular roads and turn left at this street and that street. Do you get out in the car and start following where the story might be going?
1: If I need to, if if it's not somewhere that I'm confident of enough of my memory, yes, I will go and I'll I'll go and do it. But of course, sometimes that precision gets you into trouble. With one of the Kate Brannigan novels, I remember uh, Kate Brannigan's driving down Oxford Road, the centre of Manchester, and she turns right into Charles Street, where the BBC used to be. Um, And uh, I got a letter from a reader uh, after the book had come out, and he said, "You know, I, I appreciate that at the time you wrote this book, you could turn right into Charles Street from Oxford Road, but the traffic system has changed, and you can no longer make that right turn. Perhaps you might alter this for the paperback." <laughs> Did no, you? No, no, it is what it is. But but I said, as well as writing about as, as well as writing about place in such a way that it's recognisable to somebody who lives there or knows it. You have, there are other ways of writing about places as well that you have to accommodate. So sometimes when you're writing about a real place, you have to invent something fictional in that real place uh, because of what's going to happen there. So for example, if you're writing about a nightclub where drug dealing was going on, you'd be very foolish indeed to put it in a real nightclub because you'd probably get some big men with baseball bats coming around your house on a Sunday morning to complain. Uh, so you, but you have to know the place well enough to know what sort of area in the city it would be right to put a club like that. uh, So that somebody who knows it thinks, yeah, she's got that right as well. But you also have to find a way of putting in, I suppose, what you might loosely call objective correlatives. So that somebody who's never been to Manchester will understand that the area I'm writing about corresponds to that kind of part of town where they live. So you've got to have all these things in your mind. Um, And so again, it comes back to that, that database in the head.
0: That's, that's very um, demanding on you because people have a, a really keen eye when they're reading a story and one flaw would make them disbelieve the rest of it yeah. if, if it isn't true.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I know that as a reader. I mean, sometimes sometimes when you're watching television and, and this this seems to happen quite a lot in, in, in Scottish uh, films and television programmes. They're driving down a street in Edinburgh, they turn around a corner and suddenly they're in Glasgow or Dundee. And when you're watching that, it can be very disconcerting. You think, oh, wait a minute, I don't believe this anymore. This is rubbish. So I think in, in, in that, if you're using place in that particular way, you have to be precise. And the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novels are set in a fictitious city. And that has its advantages because nobody can say, oh, but that's not where the football club is, or that's not that, you wouldn't find a place like that in that part of town um, because that can just make it up. It's, it's my city. The, the disadvantage is that I always feel it hasn't quite got the solidity, that hasn't quite got the rootedness of writing about a real place. I always, I always feel that if you sort of prodded the background in Tony and Carol, it would, it would shugle.
0: <laughs> and of course, football is something you know about because Red Rovers is one of your, is mm. your team. And there's yeah. a stand, is that right? Tell us about that.
1: Um, well it's, it's 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 you know football's tribal and for my my family tribe it's Wraith Rovers you know my grandfather went my my great my uncle's went my dad went my dad was a scout for Wraith Rovers and he uh, in the scouting role signed a, a player called Jim Baxter he was probably the greatest footballer that Scotland has ever produced though there are some people who might want to argue with that but they can do that outside the room um but Slim Jim was was a phenomenal player. My, my dad always used to say that uh, a blind man could have scouted Jim Baxter. Uh, uh, but uh, that, that connection to the club, my dad used to take me on scouting trips with him when I was wee uh, and take me to the football as well. So it's been part of the, the background of, of my life. And in recent years, I've been able to be more involved with the club. Uh, there is the McDermott stand which is really named in honour of my dad and and I sponsor the the home strip so and I've said this before and I'll doubtless say it again every other Saturday during the season you'll see 11 sweaty men running around with Val McDermott on their chest
0: (laughs) now let's talk about something else which you seem to get right to me but and I don't quite know how you do it or research it language the the dialogue that people speak and the way they speak now it's very interesting that um, Kate Browning quite different from all the others she's younger isn't she how old is she I can't remember she's in her thirties uh,
1: yes late tw- I think late twenties early thirties yeah
0: are you, are you very aware of the different ways that people of different generations speak
1: yeah I mean I'm, I'm uh, I listen I listen a lot to people talking. Uh, Robert Burns has this great line, there's a chill among you tacking notes. And I've kind of always tried to uh, adopt that role. It's a bit harder these days because I'm a bit more recognisable. I do a bit more things like on television and things like this. And, and the hair is the trademark. Uh, and, and people stop me in the street and talk all the time. So my, my capacity for eavesdropping on, on buses and in cafes has, has been slightly reduced. But one of the things I do find really helpful is, is listening to the radio, listening to local radio listening to local radio phone-ins where people of all types uh, appear and, and all sorts of conversations can be overheard. And the great advantage of, of, of the internet in this respect is that you can go and find a local radio station in Shropshire or uh, Suffolk if you want to hear particular speech rhythms and, and particular vocabularies, you can hear it there. And you can tune your ear in to how people talk and the way they talk about things. So that's, that's basically, it's, it's about observation and, and being nosy, basically.
0: You spoke We spoke at the beginning about how life today, contemporary life, is completely unpredictable and surprising. Um, do you feel that language today is changing faster than it ever did or is becoming more um, occluded, more obscure, more random and more determined by generations? Sometimes I can't understand young people at all.
1: But then, you know, my parents used to say that to me. I can't understand a word you're saying. <laughs> um, but I think, I think the thing now is that because of, of the, the, the level of connectivity that we have, uh, these, these linguistic developments spread far more quickly and so there's always the constant, uh, the constant movement, the constant pressure on people to have a sort of idiolect that is particular to their we group, their own little jargon, their own their own words. Um, so I, I do find myself having to to speak to my my son about about things. What do, what does this mean? Uh, this word that I thought it knew, I knew what it meant. Now appears to mean something completely different. Can you translate? Uh, but it's it's it's, it's I guess it's about paying attention and, and being receptive to these ideas. I, I've always, I've always um, understood the, the plastic nature of language, that it does chase, change, that it evolves. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I suppose I've, I've got quite a musical ear. Um, you know, I sing and, and I think having a musical ear, you're more attuned, I think, to how people change speech rhythms in particular and how language does evolve. So I guess I've been blessed with that.
0: What about the contemporary sitting of um, politics today, and politics in Scotland? Does that interest you? And does that change to your uh, approval?
1: Well, I, th- I find it, I find politics fascinating. I've always been a political animal, and to some degree, that you know. Uh, is part of the way that I write. The the things that that are important to me find their way into the books one way or another. Um, And so, yeah, I I, I care about the world that I live in. I care about the society that I live in. Uh, I suppose the thing that enrages me most is unfairness and inequalities. Uh, And God knows there's plenty of that around. Um, I think the Westminster government has been completely shambolic throughout the, the COVID epidemic. Uh, I think we've been fortunate in Scotland because we have communicators, good communicators, clear communicators. Uh, it's not that what we've done has been so hugely different, but it's been communicated clearly, and I think people have supported that, for example. Um, I think it's that's mirrored in the things that we're seeing now about the, the support for independence growing, uh, and you know, I have to say from a personal point of view, that makes me delighted. I think uh, Scotland could be a strong, small nation, uh, like our friends across the North Sea in Denmark, like our friends on the other side of the world in New Zealand, like Iceland, small countries led by governments that are close to the people. And I I wrote a piece recently for a newspaper uh, that pointed out that the governments that seem to have done best in the COVID epidemic had something in common, and that was that they're led by people who read fiction. People like Jacinda Ardern, Nicola Sturgeon, Katrin Jacobsdottir, Sana in Finland, they're all people who read fiction. And what fiction gives you is the gift of imagination and the gift of empathy. You see life outside your own bubble. If you're sitting there reading your endless biographies of Churchill or Attlee or whatever, you're not looking at the world outside your window. And you're not understanding the lives of the ordinary people who populate the country that you're supposed to be governing. And I think that uh, I would say really my, my advice to any politician is go and read a novel and you'll understand the world better. And if you understand the world better, you can imagine a changed world better. So that's really my fundamental political position. They need to go away and get things sorted.
0: Well, I agree with that. We could do with more empathy. That would, that would solve a lot of our problems if people could only exercise that. However, now is the time for questions from other people who've been listening to you. And indeed, lots of questions have been flowing in. And I've got some of them here. Um, let me start with a question from Lynn, who would like to know, which contemporary novel do you wish you had written and why?
1: Which contemporary novel? Well, um, I probably, if I had to opt for one, I would probably choose Ali Smith's *How to Be Both*. Uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. It comes uh, it comes in two halves: half it's set in mid Middle Ages, half it's set set now. And the book was printed in two versions, so you randomly get uh, one half first, uh, depending on which which book you get. So you either get the the medieval bit or the modern bit first. Uh, and if you if, if you buy it on, on your on your digital reading platform you get both versions uh and you know i think it's interesting to see how your how your view of the book changes depending on which bit you read first and of I've course read you both versions. have you read both virgin- yes. versions yes yes i think
0: it's a wonderful wonderful book i've read both <laughs> versions i've read it twice both versions yeah and it's It's endlessly engrossing. It is a
1: brilliant book, quite brilliant. I think Ali Smith generally has a quality of, um, whenever you finish one of her books, you feel you want to go back to the beginning and read it again because you want to read it again in the light of what you know now. I think she's an extraordinary writer. um, And I I feel privileged to live in a time where, you know, we're getting a, a new Ali Smith novel pretty much every year at the moment.
0: Well, we could send copies to the cabinet and get them to read them. That would be a good idea. Another question here from Michelle. Do do your plot ideas take long to develop, or is it once you have an inkling of an idea, the rest falls into place? Does it fall into place, though?
1: It depends. Um, Sometimes the idea comes almost fully formed. You get get the shape of the story. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can write it quickly. Uh, I had one one book where I had uh, a great idea for, for the story. I knew what the story was. I knew what the plot was. I knew who the people were in the book, and I could not find the structure couldn't find a way to tell it. And it took, me, it took me 12 years from that first moment where I knew what the story was to being able What's to write
0: it. What's the novel? We all want to know what novel is that.
1: Trick of the Dark. Um, and I wrote the first, the first 10,000 words of that uh, five times and chucked it away every time because it just wasn't right. But at other times, the idea, the idea develops over time It starts off with the seed of an idea and and it sort of kicks around the back of my mind and then something else will come in from left field and I'll think, oh yes, that kind of goes with that. And it grows and grows until there is a a fully fledged plot. And once, once in my entire career, the whole thing dropped into my head, fully formed. Uh, And I knew how to write it. And and that was the mermaid singing. Uh, And I just dived... Well, I'd I do some research first, but then I just dived straight into the book, and I knew, I knew it. I knew every step of the way. Did you write stories when you were a child? I did a bit, yes, um, but I made I made stuff up in my head. Um, mostly, I, I I it was in my head, uh, I, and I think I learned to edit very early on because when I was a kid, I was an only child. I spent a lot of time on my own, and I read a lot. Uh, we lived opposite the central library, and I just raided it on a daily basis. Uh, and in the summer holidays, I would I would go off with the dog in the morning, uh, the dog and a packed lunch and my duffel bag with a library book or two in it. Uh, and as I walked, I would be, I would be thinking about whatever I was reading, and I would kind of inject myself into the story and take the story in different directions, and and imagine myself as part of the the book. And then you'd get bogged down in the sand, you know, and the story would go go die. And i have to backtrack to where it was still exciting and try and push it in a different direction. So that was kind you of how I, I, I learned editorial skills without even knowing I was doing it.
0: You spoke of empathy. I wonder if you ever feel sympathy for your villains?
1: Oh, yes. Um, I, I, I'm not, uh, I know some some crime writers who, who write about evil as if it's something you catch in the winter when you don't wear a vest, you know, that's a that thing that's out there. I don't believe in in. Evil. I don't believe in people being born evil, because if you subscribe to that view, then what is the point in trying to make it anything better? If some people are just born evil, they're just going to come along and trash it anyway. So let's not try to make the world a better place. It's just, let's just go along with everything being potentially awful. So I think it also lets us off the hook. You know, If, if you think these people can't be fixed, then there's no point in trying. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, yeah, I think most people who end up doing bad things In their heads have a good reason for doing them. And sometimes it's situational. They've had unbelievably grim childhoods. They've had terrible things visited upon them and had not been given any uh, route by which they can escape from the damage that has done. Uh, And I think most crime, most serious crime is committed by people who in one way or another are very damaged.
0: you think that's true of Jimmy Savile?
1: I don't know enough about his background. But probably there is some damage in there from childhood. Doesn't excuse them, but it explains.
0: Another question here. This is from Abigail. Do you ever feel constrained by crime fiction genre conventions when you're writing your crime novels, or are they helpful? Do they give you a framework?
1: Um, I think the crime novel has changed drastically in the 30 odd years since i was first published in 1987 i was lucky enough to start writing crime fiction at a time when the genre was expanding in lots of different directions when i started out in in, in the uk there was pretty much uh, only village mysteries and police procedurals now there are like so many different subgenres so you can really tell any kind of story you want to tell within within the broad framework of the genre. And I find that really helpful. Um, I don't know if this is a, a sad, pitiful thing to admit, but for me, the adrenaline buzz of, of knowing it's a matter of life and death is quite a big, strong driver to take me forward through the story. Uh, I, I, like, I like there to be a sense of, of, of significance, of importance, about what's happening in the story. And, and there's nothing uh, makes it more important than a dead body on the page.
0: Who, who, which crime writers other than yourself do you admire? I mean, okay, Sherlock Holmes, we have to love um, Conan Doyle, don't we? But who else?
1: Oh, there's too many to list, but I mean, I, I would go I would go back through people that uh, I read a lot when I was, was reading and not writing crime fiction. So writers like Josephine Tay, Ruth Rendell, Reginald Hill, P.D. James, and then on to, but then so many contemporary writers that are just really, really good. I mean, Sarah Paretsky was hugely influential for me in my early days, but there's lots of uh, writers coming through all the time from all around the world, you know, sort of Michael Robotham in Australia, Stuart Neville in in Ireland, Uh, American writers that I love like Laura Lipman uh, and Attica Locke. I could just sit here all day telling them, go and read these books.
0: Especially politicians, we want them to read those books. Okay, here we are. Um, another question. This one from Claire. How might you imagine Karen Perry has been experiencing lockdown?
1: I think she'll have found it quite frustrating. Um, I know she 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 took a, she's taken a stack of files from the office. Uh, of cases to, to go and, and look through. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that uh, if I was thinking about writing something with Karen in lockdown, I might try to do something like uh, what, what Josephine Tay does with The Daughter of Time and Colin Dexter did with The Wench is Dead. In both those cases, their detective is, is in hospital. Uh, and and imprisoned in a hospital bed and unable to get out and investigate. So I don't know. I suppose it might be possible to think of doing a Karen Piri cold case from within lockdown. But we're driving her mad. It's the one thing she loves us to Very impatient,
0: wouldn't she? She's quite an impatient woman. She'd be very impatient.
1: Yeah, and she loves to walk. I mean, that's the, her, her way of dealing with the, the, the noise in her head is to walk. And of course, in, in the beginning of lockdown, we were not supposed to go out for more than an hour a day. And she'd probably be sneaking out in the middle of the night to sort of quarter the streets of the new town.
0: <laughs> right. Let me fetch another question this way. Um, Mike, Mike R, we don't know his surname. How well does the audiobook version of Karen Peary fit with her voice in your head?
1: Well it's not the same as the voice in my head because Karen Pitty's voice in my head is is distinct um but I think that the audiobooks are very good. Uh, I think we're very very lucky with with the narrator. Um so uh, I think always uh, my characters have very distinctive voices in my head. And it never it never entirely matches the actors who read them, but that's fine, because it's a different form. It's the, it's the, what's the What matters is that the words are conveyed in a way that people enjoy listening to. Um, and and um, some people sometimes say to me, can you read other, other novels when you're writing? I know some writers say I can't read other novels because it interferes with the voices in my head. I've never had that problem. The voices in my head drown everything else out (laughs) especially towards the end of the book when you know my family will say you're not listening to us you're listening to the voices in your head there's one on that shoulder and one on that shoulder
0: well it does get rather frantic at the end of still life doesn't it it really was a page down very quickly Good. Good. (laughs) and well along that line um someone has asked um if karen if karen perry was uh, filmed who would you like to play the part? It's hard to ask you because it's asking you to be partial between one actor and another.
1: Well, Karen Pirry is actually in development at the moment. Uh, and the plan is that, uh, well, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, start filming next year. Uh, but as yet, no casting decisions have been made. We have had extensive discussions about the kind of actor who will have to play Karen Pirry. And I think we're all on the same page with that. But. Uh, it would be invidious, as you say, to start talking about individual names.
0: But, on what, but when you talk about Karen being on a film, what are the concerns that you share with other people about how she's how she's presented? Uh, she's, got she's got to be, be slight, isn't she? She's quite slight, I would think.
1: No, she's quite. She's, she's not slight. She's quite substantial, I think. I mean, she's not fat, but she's she's she's, she's substantial. Got... She's a woman of substance. Um, And she's from Fife, which means that whoever plays her has to be able to manage an East Coast accent. Um, Because I think to most people in in England, they don't really differentiate much with Scottish accents. But to us, we know precisely the difference between somebody for Fife, Ken, and somebody for Glasgow. So uh, it has to to feel authentic on the ear. and yeah, she's that's that it. She's got to look right, uh, approximately right. She's not going to be a carbon copy of the books. That never happens. Um, but she's got to have. She's got to feel right. Uh, I was very lucky with the, with Wire in the Blood because uh, Robson Green looked very similar to the Tony Hill in my head, and he felt right. He felt right in the part. Hermione Norris, who played Carol Jordan, didn't look at all like the Carol Jordan in my head, but she did a really great job. So that's the most important thing: is that they they bring to the television series something that the, the viewers will love and, and want to carry on watching.
0: Well, if Karen's got a five accent, um, is the five radio? Can somebody listen to what local yeah, radio? Five
1: There's so. there's there's, uh, there's Kingdom FM. Uh, or they just go to a over's football match and obdi be talking like this, Ken.
0: <laughs> You're very good at it yourself. Um, now, Barbara Davies wants to know. I know our authors have special relationships of trust with their editors. What type of suggestions have you received, if any, from your editors, um, which you were prepared to implement?
1: Um, I think it is very important to have a a relationship with your editor that you trust. And different editors edit in different ways, and different writers like to be edited in different ways. I've always been very fortunate to have uh, editors that are in tune with what I'm trying to do, and who edit me in the way that I want to be edited. And generally, what I find is that... Uh, I mean, I, I, I hand, the, hand the draft in, and a couple of weeks go by, I get notes, and then we have a long conversation. And in the course of the conversation, uh, I will find a way to resolve what the issues are. And I would say 90% of the time, the issues that my editor raises are things that I already know are not quite right. But I've done. I've done the best I could do on the day, and I need that conversation to talk through other possibilities. I couldn't work with an editor who told me I had to do things. Um, I, I just. I couldn't do that. That's not. I'm not having. I don't want to be prescribed. I don't want an editor who wants to write their own book and can't do it, so they get me to write it for them. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, yeah, as I say, I've been very fortunate. And the kind of things we'll talk about are. Um, i uh, just an example. Um, uh, one of the Brannigan books, I remember editor saying something about chapter 19, Alexis is behaving very aggressively, you know, either you have to, you're have you going to have to tone that down or give us a reason for it. And so in the course of that, we discussed what the problem was and why. Because sometimes it's just as simple as you think you've told the reader something and you haven't, it's only in your head, you haven't actually put it on the page. Uh, so that's sometimes one of the problems that, that occurs. Um, something that you, you knew about, but you weren't yeah. telling us. I knew why she them. was cross. <laughs> Just hadn't <laughs> bothered to tell question. them. <laughs> yeah. A final
0: question now from um, Liz Mackie, who wants to know, in our present situation and generally in times of adversity, do you find that writing is a coping strategy?
1: Um, I, I don't know that I would describe it thus. I mean, it's, it's my job. It, it, it's what I do. And I'm fortunate that uh, in pretty much any circumstances, I can find a space where I can write. What I would say is that uh, in, in lockdown, what's been, it's taken me longer. I've been less productive in the time available. Um, so if it's a coping strategy, it's not been a very, very good one, I'm afraid.
0: A lot of writers have said that. That They thought, good, lockdown, I can get on with my book. And a lot of my friends have said, and I've not been doing it at all. I've not been able to. Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's that none of us knew what was happening, what was going to happen next. And so, I mean, certainly I know that I was stopping more often to look at the, the, the rolling news, to, to look at Twitter, to, to see if I could uh, discern some change that was going on. Um, and also, I suppose, spending more time staring out the window, just, just thinking about where we were. And there was a sort of low thrum of anxiety all the time. And that doesn't help you to get words on the page. But uh, as I say, I got, I got the book written. Um, I was only a little, a little bit late, but it got done.
0: And it's got published. And it's been wonderful to talk to you about it, Val. We, good luck to it. You know, still Life will be a bestseller, just like all the others. Well, Thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Thanks, John. It's been great. Thank you for listening. Find out
0: more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.